0: Hey everyone, today's book is Big Little Lies by Leon Moriarty. I spent a long time on a joke about how it's kind of like Schrodinger's cat because the lies are both big and little, so pretend you're laughing at my incredible joke. It's both funny and not funny. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and for me,
1: reading this book was a lot like watching the new King Richard movie about Venus and Serena Williams' father, That is, at times it made me feel like an inadequate parent, and other times it made me feel like a great one.
0: (laughs) And I'm David Vance. If I ever start turning into an ultra-masculine bro, just remind me I read this book till 5 a.m., weeping. Big Little Lies starts with the first day of kindergarten and ends with a murder, which is kind of how life is if you are murdered. (laughs) By the way, it's a masterpiece. And this is The Book Pile. Also, speaking of Big Little Lies, today we're doing a special deal where if you rate and review our podcast, you will never die. <laughs>
1: podcast listener, I love this game, zero one two nine three eight four six five says, <laughs> I respect that you read the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanted to throw it out there in case they're like hiding their social out in the open. <laughs> this is genuinely the best podcast I've subscribed to by far. Excellent work, guys. That's nice. It's, uh, it also, again, shows my insecurity because it, for, as I was reading it, I thought that they were saying the best podcast they subscribed to so far. <laughs> and I was about to be like, this is a bad review. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Can someone
1: please help Kellen? <laughs> if you want to see me perform live, I'm going to be at Wise Guys in downtown Salt Lake City, December 9th through the 11th. Go to wiseguyscomedy.com. Before we get to the book, I just wanted to mention that I know that we have some families that listen to the podcast, and I can't recommend this book to children. While it is mostly a delightful read, there is a very heavy B-plot, a smattering of F-bombs, and a couple of scenes that warrant a hard R rating. So I just wanted to put that warning out there
0: to whom it may concern. Finally, our next two books are To Kill a Mockingbird and The Sociopath Next Door, both of which are kind of about Boo Radley. (laughs) All right, without further ado, here are our five favorite lessons from Big Little Lies. All right, lesson one, be a good noticer. And this is a good reminder for me because I once failed to notice someone in my life lost 50 pounds. (laughs) Oh, wow. In fairness, I was like 11. (laughs) So I think Leon Moriarty is the most emotionally specific writer I've read. The way my sister Cassie puts it is she writes things we've all experienced but never seen written down before. Mm. So I'm going to read some of my favorite lines from the book. If parents had children who were good sleepers, they assumed this was due to their good parenting, not good luck. They followed the rules, and the rules had been proven to work. Celeste must therefore not be following the rules. And you could never prove it to them. They would die smug in their beds. So I'm I'm not even a parent, and I relate so hard to that, because I've been both the person who thinks they have every answer and the person judged by that person. (laughs) Another one. They say it's good to let your grudges go, but I don't know. I'm quite fond of my grudge. I tend it like a little pet. (laughs) And I love that Leon is basically confessing, because she must do some of these things, or how could she write about them so specifically? Yeah, this
1: was one of my favorite moments, too, in the book, because sometimes what's relatable to us isn't even necessarily good, but it's almost a relief (laughs) to, to hear someone else talk about it. Because we know that like holding a grudge is obviously an emotionally weakening move, but we relate <laughs> and it endears us to her because she frames it in such a cute way. Uh-huh. Like I <laughs> I want to try and do this now, just own up to something horrible, but admit to it adorably. <laughs> like Say <laughs> something like uh, – Hey, sometimes when I'm at a friend's house, instead of washing my hands in the bathroom, I'll just turn on the water so that everyone outside can hear it like a tiny waterfall in a fairy kingdom.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I do think about that, how sometimes the healthiest choice is not the most fun choice. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I I think about how the things that make me a worse person probably make me a better comedian. (laughs) On the subject of grudges, you hear the quotes like this one. Anger is a hot coal that you hold in your hand while waiting to throw it at someone else. And that's true from a health perspective, but also it's like, I don't know, is it really fun to talk with your friends about that hot coal? (laughs) (laughs) Is it a really enjoyable bonding experience and comedy experience?
1: (laughs) Yeah, sometimes isn't it artificially invigorating To fantasize about winning an argument against someone?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Another one, Madeline thrived on conflict and was never happier than when she was outraged. (laughs) So all of us are sometimes that person, and we all know someone who is always that person. (laughs) Another one we've all done, every time I ask her to explain her job, I forget to listen. (laughs) Like, you know that thing you do in conversation where you realize you were completely not listening, and then you try to bluff your way out just using context clues? (laughs) (laughs) Last one. So the, the character Madeline has two best friends, and she finds out the man who attacked one is related to the husband of the other one. And it says, she was trying not to sound breathlessly thrilled by this horrible coincidence. Of course, it was not exciting. This was awful. But there was an irresistible breathless pleasure in it. I experienced this firsthand about 10 or 12 years ago
1: a coworker approached me with this same sort of breathlessly thrilled to tell me uh, a tsunami had just hit Japan <laughs> and this thing you know it, it took the lives of like 20,000 people and I was like oh yeah I heard about that that was, it was terrible and he was like visibly deflated <laughs> like, he was he was more bummed out that I already knew about this tragedy <laughs> than he was about the deaths of
0: 20,000 humans. That is so dark and secretly relatable. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like, I always wonder who those people are who, when a famous person dies— They rush online and immediately change their Wikipedia page to be past tense, because I've never beaten that person. I've never gotten to the Wikipedia page, and it's still present tense. They are so quick on the trigger. So all this to say, Leon clearly pays attention to her own psychology, and she notices things most of us miss. And I think being a good noticer makes you better at almost any job, whether you're a writer or an entrepreneur, parent, psychologist, comedian, scientist, or if you're just someone trying not to get cheated on. (laughs) (laughs) Lesson
1: two, use description as if you were a director. So we've brought up Harry Potter at least twice on this podcast before. (laughs) And uh, just to jog your memory, Dave... Harry Potter is a book series about a magic wizard school in England. Okay. Now, J.K. Rowling uses an efficient layered approach to to description where she will use a simile and and compare something to another thing in the same universe. So she'll compare the way that Ron's girlfriend is screaming to a howler, which is... uh, a magical screaming letter in the world of Harry Potter. I'm just explaining all this for Thank you for the Dave. reminder. Um, but Moriarty, uh, she describes actions in a way that you could literally describe them to someone acting the part of the character. Mm-hmm.
0: That's that's kind of like how when Dave Barry was writing a fake screenplay, he said, the protagonist looked like Tom Cruise or like Al Pacino if he's not available. <laughs>
1: So, at one point, after Jane reveals to Madeline that she is a single mother, the book reads that Madeline reacted by saying, quote, "'Are you?' said Madeline, as if Jane had just announced something rather daring and wonderful. Mm. Well, "'Well, you know people always like to forget this, but I was a single mother,' said Madeline." She sat upright and lifted her chin as if she were addressing a crowd of people who disagreed with her. (laughs) Uh, At another point during this conversation, she says that Madeline grinned and pointed her teaspoon at Jane saying, good for you. And you can just see it, that sort of right. authoritative, that validating jab that she's giving her with this tiny spoon. Yeah, everything is just so emotionally specific. It's so visible. It's showing without telling, but in a way that is very clear and we can link to this image immediately. Unlike Ayn Rand, when she did, like in Atlas Shrugged, she'll say something like, he looked at her in a way that was both intimidating yet soft, with the confidence of a lion and shrewdness of an elk, but with the fortitude of a camel. And it's like, what? <laughs> how, how do you do all of this with one Wait, no, stare? that's a real passage? No, but it's very close. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it's actually much shorter than many of her descriptions of how someone is looking at another person. And it's just like, again, if you were a director and you threw all of that at an actor, like, what would you even do with that?
0: (laughs) I don't know. Is my actor a lion? (laughs) Yeah, I do think Leon is great at that. A term I've heard used for it before is vuja day, the opposite of deja vu. Mm. Just this idea of you see something familiar with a fresh view rather than the opposite.
1: And just to cap this off, for any new fans of the show, Dave has actually read the Harry Potter series dozens of times and in more than one language. (laughs) All right. Lesson three. Kill three birds with one stone. And that's not a play on an old saying. It's just something I did once at a zoo. (laughs) So I brought this up before, again, on a Harry Potter episode, but it's the principle of giving your sentences more than one purpose. So the idea is not only to be concise in your writing, but to try and at least double up the purpose of as many sentences as you can. It's like that saying, less is more, but what I think is missing from that saying, and maybe the original author left the rest out, out of principle. um, (laughs) But I I think less is only more if you put in the effort to make it more. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't try, less is just less. <laughs> right? So it's doing both. It's it's making things shorter, but doubling up the meaning within them. So, for example, at one point, a teenage girl character refuses what her mother, Madeline, uh, has made for dinner. So the girl says, I'm going to be a vegan. And Madeline says... Over my dead body, you are. (laughs) So I love this because in this response, we get a few things. We get what Madeline's opinion on veganism is, but with the hostility, we feel that grudge that we mentioned earlier. Because she mentions yeah. next that her daughter's stepmother, Bonnie, is also a vegan. So there's that mother-to-stepmother jealousy. And then we also get what we think might possibly be foreshadowing. Because this book, if you, if you haven't read it, and I know there's always spoilers, but I actually don't want to give much away here. Yeah, um, I don't either. What's fun about the book is that it's, it's sort of a twist on a whodunit because you find out you don't know who the murderer is, but you also don't know who was murdered. One of the many things that kept me reading is wanting to know like both sides of this mystery. And so to me, that's this uh, yet another layer of this sentence when Madeline says, over my dead body. It, It seems like maybe it's foreshadowing, but then later Moriarty pretty much does this with every character where at some point, each of them will say something like, oh, I would kill for a muffin right now.
0: So then you're like, oh, is she the murderer? I think it's interesting too that you see this sort of thing in other fields. Like Johnny Ive, the designer from Apple, talks about how they really wanted to go as simple as possible with their products and to do that you have to have the same pieces perform many different roles. Mm. Just so that uh,
1: anyone wasn't taking me seriously, the whole zoo thing uh that was in self defense.
0: <laughs> I'd love if the birds were ostriches. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's, doesn't that image seem A lot more justified <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah if the kill two birds is about Two aggressive emus Here's my new favorite Kill millions of birds with One asteroid 65 million Years ago <laughs> Lesson four Fiction can tackle heavy topics So this one's gonna be sad So don't expect a lot of jokes Unless Kellen still has some good JFK jokes in the chamber. (laughs) Oh, what a
1: horrible way to frame that joke. In case Kellen has
0: any JFK jokes in his sights. (laughs) Anytime someone's offended by a JFK joke, I'm always like, oh, did you know him? (laughs) And also, if you're a head of state who tries to have other heads of state assassinated, you don't get to be mad that someone got you first. (laughs) All right, so on to the serious bit. So I've read now four of Moriarty's books, and each one is so funny and optimistic and sweet, but it also has at least one really serious storyline, whether it's abuse or infertility or mental health. And so this one has a story about domestic abuse, and she said at the Emmys it was based on an actual boyfriend she had. And she tells it just so vividly that I want to read some of the excerpts. Perhaps she could stay. It was always such a glorious relief when she allowed herself to believe she could stay. Marriage to Perry meant she was always ready to justify her actions, constantly monitoring what she'd just said or done while simultaneously feeling defensive about the defensiveness. Each time we have a fight, if I get hurt, then I get the power back. Then the weeks go by and I can feel it shifting. He stops feeling so guilty and sorry. I start walking on eggshells, but at the same time, I'm angry that I have to walk on eggshells. So sometimes I stomp on the eggshells and then it happens again. Mm. She'd called from the office. There's something wrong with the computer and a tiny part of her warned. No, don't tell him. What if he can't fix it? Stupid, stupid. She should have known better. She wanted to position herself not as superior to other women, but her situation was different from that woman in the parking lot. Celeste didn't need a shelter. She needed tips, 10 top tips to stop my husband from hitting me. And then there's the final line of the book, which Celeste says, this can happen to anyone. So she just writes so specifically and powerfully that this book is both a murder mystery about school gossip and a book that has taught me more about abuse than probably anything I've read.
1: That's something that I really appreciated from this book, too, is that there is comedy and there are also these dark moments. Uh, but the, the comedy isn't there to sugarcoat the darkness and the the violence isn't there to be entertaining. So everything does have its, its place in the book. It's so well put together. I'm just going to echo what you said about that this helped me understand what millions of people go through in a way that I was I was never able to empathize this deeply with before.
0: Yeah. On that comedy point, have you ever heard this George Orwell quote, "The aim of a joke is not to degrade the human being, but to remind him that he is already degraded." <laughs> Anyway, I, I do think that sometimes you can smuggle the important stuff in with the pop stuff or the, the comedic stuff. Like, that's basically, I think, the whole idea of Ted Lasso. Oh, yeah. All right, back to jokes. <laughs> <laughs> so two JFKs
1: walk into a bar. <laughs> One of them says, shoot, I'm thirsty. <laughs> this margarita is mind-blowing. <laughs>
0: All right, random facts. So I love this writing advice from Leon Moriarty. She says, I always say to younger aspiring authors that the best thing to do is to lead a really interesting life because then you'll have a whole lot of material to call upon. And it reminds me of this quote my friend Gregory sent me from Joe Haldeman. Bad books on writing tell you, write what you know, a totally false adage that is the reason there exists so many mediocre novels about English professors contemplating adultery. (laughs) I'm sick of that adage,
1: too. Here's another fun fact. Saying old adage is redundant because adage already <laughs> means an old saying. It's also like I remember reading a, a book about writing, and it was by uh, someone who had worked as an editor for 30 years. And they were like, any time that I would get a manuscript, and in the query letter, the author introduced the book as a fiction novel. <laughs> <laughs> so at one point when moriarty is describing jane's mother, by the way it
0: is fun to call her by her last name isn't it
1: <laughs> well that's something i think that is one difference if you go back and listen to all these episodes is i always refer them to them by their last name and you refer to everyone as if they're your best friend <laughs> um but it, it is especially fun to say Moriarty because I feel like I'm just talking about this British villain. Right. So when Moriarty's describing Jane's mother, uh, she says, quote, She was a silent giggler like Dave Vance from that one podcast. <laughs> you know, the one where everyone hears Kellen laughing at Dave's jokes and Dave ignores Kellen?
0: You're doing it right now. <laughs> this is my natural <laughs> laugh. <laughs> This is my genuine laugh, and I don't know what you want me to do about it. I don't believe you, because one time <laughs> one time, you told me that your
1: roommates think that you're weird because you will laugh out loud when you're alone <laughs> watching Netflix. So, why doesn't Netflix get the silent giggles?
0: <laughs> I'm just doing my best. <laughs> oh, also, did she refer to me as David or as Vance? <laughs> So I started watching The Big Little Lies show, and I think it's funny that in high school, probably a bunch of boys had a crush on Shailene Woodley, and I bet some of them thought, you know, hey, I have a shot with her, and uh, maybe one day we'll get married. And then she grew up and became a movie star and is marrying Aaron (laughs) Rodgers. So this girl you thought you had a shot with married Aaron Rodgers, and you could not have been more wrong. (laughs)
1: So we've talked a little bit uh, about Madeline and this contentious relationship, at least on her end, that she has with her ex-husband's new wife, Bonnie. So at at one point, Madeline says, it turns out that a conversation with Bonnie was just like being in labor. The pain could always get much, much worse.
0: (laughs) I had a roommate like that. I've talked about him before. (laughs) Everyone knows a Bonnie. (laughs) So Madeline in the book calls her birthday the Festival of Madeline, which is such a great idea. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to start calling my birthday the Drunken Bacchanal of Dave. (laughs) So to me, another
1: fun moment of charming description and this sort of acting direction that Moriarty gives. It comes from a grandmother who is watching the parents drop their kids off at school. And the grandmother says, these mothers, with their frantic little faces, their busy little bottoms strutting into the school in their tight gym gear, ponytails swinging, phones held in the palms of their hands like compasses. <laughs> and I just, there's, she said so much in that sentence. You just know exactly who you're looking at.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And it also reminds me that like in public, whenever I'm not on my phone... I'm judging everyone else for being on their phone.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And when I am on my phone, I'm judging people for being cliche enough to think I should never be on my phone. (laughs) For some reason, that description you just read reminded me of a description she gave of someone in Apple's Never Fall, a book of hers I just finished. She's talking about this older man who refuses to get a cell phone, and his wife... (laughs) His wife thinks that he always brings this up as though he's being brave, like he's the one person refusing to do the Nazi salute. <laughs> <laughs> so when I read books about parenting, like this one, I'm kind of in this weird middle ground where I have no kids, so I can't relate, but I'm the oldest of 10, so I kind of can. <laughs> like, like I've never raised a kid, but I have done some things a lot of parents haven't done, like watch nine kids at a time. <laughs> And also, I think I've still changed more diapers than some fathers I know. Anyway, so now I want you to imagine that I tell a good joke about how I'm kind of like Schrodinger's cat, both a parent and not a parent. So speaking of
1: relatability, at one point, Madeline feels inadequate because the other parents in their social circle all seem to be happy and professionally successful. And she feels like she just hasn't lived up to, to those things. But she does find some solace in being a mother in a moment when her little girl is having a nightmare. So she basically says that this was a relief because she knows she she can't protect her kids after they grow up. But, quote, at least she could drag that monster out from under Chloe's bed and kill it with her bare hands. <laughs> And I've, uh, I've done my share of that, although one time, one time I felt bad <laughs> because <laughs> my reaction should not have been what it was, because your, your reaction is always, it's okay, there's nothing here, everything is fine, I'll lay with you, go back to sleep, la la la. But one time, my daughter had a nightmare, she would have been maybe six years old, and I went in and I was like, it's okay, it's okay, um, do you want to talk about it? And she said, I dreamed that I was here in my bed, and a man came up to me and said, if I tickle you, you'll disappear. (laughs) And I (laughs) I was just like, ugh. (laughs) Now I'm scared.
0: (laughs) Like, I'm glad I wasn't like, why would you tell me that? (laughs) You think Stephen King, in those moments with his kids, takes out a notepad and he's like, oh, that's really rich. (laughs) I wonder if Stephen King has like a Thomas Edison situation where he gets a bunch of easily frightened kids, places them in scary scenarios, and then has them tell him their nightmares. (laughs) I feel like I'm just going to tell my kids, oh, your monster's vegan. (laughs) Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know if it looks like that's going to change. But for now, just be ready for a lot of judgmental comments, I guess.
1: <laughs> so another thing that Moriarty does really well is planting seeds early on so that we don't question choices later on that might have seemed extreme if they came out of nowhere. So, for example, there's one character who regularly will donate like ten or twenty thousand dollars almost just to see if her husband will even notice because they're that rich. So then later on when she donates a crazy amount of money, it doesn't really come out of the blue because she's in an, in an extreme emotional state and this is something she had already done in the past. And so we don't even question it. And to me, that just makes for a good story, whether it's a, you know, a book, a TV show or a movie. Those are the moments that become distracting, is when uh, a choice comes out of nowhere. Like they could do this, they could do this in scary movies. You know, in those cheap, scary movies where the person inexplicably goes down into the cellar to check things out, like that's when I will check out of a movie when everyone in the theater is like, none of us would do that, right? They they could at least try in the script, even if it was something as dumb as like in the beginning of a horror film, one of the characters could say, hey, friends. I uh, just want to remind you all before we go on this road trip in the woods that, you know, the basements of dark, abandoned cabins really de stress me. <laughs> <laughs> just so that later on, when he goes down there, we're like, I mean, I wouldn't do it, but
0: I get why he would. You know what I just love is opening my mirror cabinet and then closing it, and something's there. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what else? ...is walking around with my back to huge, enormous, dark spaces.
1: (laughs) What I love is hearing a a scary noise come from my living room. Uh, So when I walk down there, I see that a poorly balanced book has fallen over, and I'm completely relieved and assume that the noise came from that.
0: (laughs) And then I go and vulnerably bend to pick up the book. (laughs) all right to recap our favorite lessons from big little lies one be a good noticer two use description as if you were a director three kill three emus with one stone (laughs) four fiction can tackle heavy topics and five
1: you should probably just homeschool your kids